Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. We have three courses on today's table. First, a Brookings expert explains his value-added approach to college rankings. Second, in the coffee break, meet a scholar who grew up in Vancouver, the son of Estonian exiles from World War II. And finally, stay tuned for part three of our Paris Climate Conference series, in which a scholar looks at the role of carbon pricing. My guest here in the studio today is Jonathan Rothwell, a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings, who has been doing a lot of work on a new approach to college rankings. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. U.S. News & World Report's college rankings, along with some others, are, are popular and widely consumed. You've developed another approach to college rankings that you described in a report headlined Beyond College Rankings. How was your ranking system different than these others? Well, U.S. News and the other conventional popular rankings put weight on various aspects of a college, such as the selectivity, things like the test scores of the students admitted to the college, the graduation or retention rates, faculty salary, class size. So those are sort of things you could consider quality aspects of the college. And while this may sound fine, there are a number of, of pretty significant problems with this. So the first problem is that selectivity is a measure of pre-enrollment achievement, not what the college does for students, but really how well the students are prepared for success by their parents, by previous teachers, and, and other factors that really have nothing to do with the college itself. Like going to a fancy prep school and... Uh, exactly. Kind of so yeah, why reward uh, you know, a, a college for the, the great input that the previous teachers gave to its students? Uh, so, you know, just you know, to, to, do, to give you an ana- analogy about this, you can imagine, uh, you know, a, a restaurant ranking system that ranked restaurants based on exclusivity, like such as the price of the, you know, the average plate of food. Well, that, that may be correlated with the quality of, of the food, but it's not hard to imagine examples of restaurants that are very expensive where you say, well, I've had a better food you know, at, a, at a fairly cheap, low-cost place down the street. So uh, you know, similarly, one wouldn't want to confuse exclusivity with, with quality. Uh, a second major problem with the U.S. News ranking system is that the quality measures that it includes are, in fact, highly correlated with selectivity. So it may seem like a totally innocuous thing to give weight to the graduation rate, teacher salaries, alumni giving as U.S. News does. But it's actually a problem because you don't know what percentage of the success for those outcomes, those kind of quality issues, should be given to the students versus the school. Uh, You know, to take the restaurant analogy, again, you can imagine a game show like Top Chef in which one chef was given stale ingredients chosen at random and the other chef was given fresh ingredients that she got to choose wouldn't be fair to compare the two based on the, the, you know, the, the taste of the food. So uh, what I tried to develop was a value-added ranking that really puts the emphasis on the, the contribution that the schools make to student alumni success. So uh, you're focused on the contribution of schools and this value-added approach. Let me ask you to, to comment on um, another ranking that just came out, actually, and it's on the Brookings website in our Evidence Speaks series, a former Brookings scholar named Matt Chingos. He published what he calls an economic mobility ranking of U.S. colleges. Can you speak to that briefly? Yes, sure. So I, I like Matt's work uh, quite a lot and always follow his research with interest. What, what he was up to here was really signaling what 
could be done if better data were available. So his point is that a K through 12 ranking system that tries to do value added usually looks at the test scores of students when they enter a classroom and then compares that to the test scores when they leave the classroom at the end of the year. And so that, in a sense, automatically controls for aspects of, of the student because you're, you're considering his or her preparation uh, at the beginning of a period. So Matt says we could do something similar with, with earnings data. The problem with the sources that are available today is that you don't have a measure of pre-enrollment income per se. What you have is a family income measure. And so for dependent students who usually are living with their parents, that's basically parental income. Now, you could compare parental income to student income after graduation. That's a meaningful measure of mobility. But you want to be able to distinguish the, the family incomes before versus uh, the incomes of the students themselves. But for independent students, what you're measuring with family income is either their own individual income or the individual or the, the income of themselves and their spouse. And, and so what Matt's saying is, well, let's not blur these concepts. Let's try to keep them separate and compare independent students to independent students before and after independent to dependent. And I think that makes a lot of sense. The problem with existing data sources now is that on the input side, they don't really distinguish between those two concepts. So it's more of a hypothetical model. The other thing that Matt did in that piece is he compared my ranking system to those generated by The Economist recently, which just came out with a value ranking system of its own. What he found is that his measure of economic mobility, uh, with all the limitations it has, is very highly correlated with my measure of value added, but it's actually negatively correlated with The Economist's measure of value added. And you might think, well, how is that even possible that uh, they just took a, a, a different approach, they included variables that I didn't include, and there are some sort of subtle technical reasons uh, why our two approaches differ. So we have uh, The Economist, we have U.S. News and World Report, we have Chingos, we have Rothwell. Uh, why do we need more college ranking systems? Yeah, I don't actually think we need more college ranking systems. I think we need better ranking systems, and I, I hope I've contributed to that in some way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, with the, the problems with U.S. News and some of the conventional rankings, there's there's way too much emphasis on selectivity, uh, non-selective schools have no chance to ever make it towards the top of the rankings. And as a result, there are a lot of hidden gems out there, uh, if, if one only goes by those conventional rankings, that are providing great outcomes for its students. Uh, and, you know, that's very important from a public policy perspective. I think most people, if they thought about it, would be more interested in rewarding uh, the schools that are doing a great job for low-income students or for students who otherwise would be destined to low-paying careers. And to some extent, we don't have to worry about the students who are the, graduating at the top of their high school classes and getting fantastic scores on SAT and ACT. They could go to a fairly mediocre school and probably end up doing pretty well because of all the other great inputs they've had in their educational career. Uh, so that's you know, a big part of what I was trying to do is is provide this new value added approach to uh, you know, serve public policy interests, and I think there's also some potential benefits for for students on the transparency side. But I think that you know the biggest interest is it's really administrators, public policy officials. 
I want to I dive uh, into this uh, notion of value added in a second, but I just want to um, circle back and speak to this notion of the, the kinds of elite schools that we always see at the top of, say, the U.S. News Report. And you mentioned that, that you were looking for the, uh, the more non-selective colleges. And just by way of example, you're looking at uh, both two-year and four-year colleges. I mean, we see things like uh, Babson College and uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic and Harvey Mudd College kind of higher up in your rankings, and we don't, usually don't see those. So can, let's talk about value-added now. Um, how did you find value-added? What is it? Well, the, the concept value-added in this context compares expected outcomes to actual outcomes. Uh, this, this really means yeah, estimating what alumni earnings, in this case, would look like based on the characteristics of the students who go there and some of the characteristics of the college that you wouldn't want to consider part of, of its qualities, such as its location in a high-cost or low-cost area. Uh, and uh, the difference between you know, the predicted and the actual al- alumni outcomes is, is really what w- we call value-added. Uh, you know, the, the concept is used in macroeconomics and considering GDP. When uh, GDP is calculated, we don't just add up all the revenue that companies generate. We subtract out imports from other countries. We subtract out the costs of production. In, in a business context, uh, the, the concept of profits is really a value-added concept. It's, it's the uh, revenue brought in minus the costs. So uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways where this sort of measure makes more sense. And uh, you know, I think it does here in the, in the college context as well. So just to emphasize, I know there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, really intense econometrics going on here, but you're trying to isolate out student characteristics uh, so that you can focus solely on the value that the college itself uh, supplies to the student. Is that right? Right. Okay. Um, now, a lot of your uh, data is uh, uh, based on the Obama administration's new college scorecard. Can you explain what that is and how you use those data? Sure. The, the college scorecard is the culmination of President Obama's effort to empower consumers to make more informed choices about where they go to college. He signaled this priority in an earlier State of the Union address, and, the, and his Department of Education is working on it for, for a few years now. He and, and others, in, in my opinion, rightly believe that greater market transparency in higher education will be useful for consumers in and of itself, but also help drive down the costs of college from what they otherwise would be as, as, as people you know, go towards the, the colleges with the highest quality irrespective of, uh, of, of price. And, in, and colleges can – lower cost colleges that, that get great results can market themselves accordingly. Uh, so the the source of data for the college scorecard is you know comes from the Treasury Department, basically IRS earnings data, and, and um, data on student loan programs that the federal government administers. And these data were not previously available, which is why this college scorecard is is so exciting. Uh, so you know on the on the strength side, it's it's really the most comprehensive database out there on alumni earnings. It provides data for roughly 6,000 institutions. So to compare that, U.S. News's national college ranking and uh, national university rankings are about have about 200 colleges each. 
Uh, so we're talking about a you know, huge difference in the, the number of, of colleges that where, where data is available, including two-year colleges, which are usually completely ignored by ranking systems. And uh, the only other wide, widely available source for earnings before the college scorecard was Payscale, a private company. And they had earnings data for about 1,300 colleges. So it's a, it's a big improvement over that. Plus, Payscale collected data on about a million students uh, for their total you know, cohorts across a number of different years, whereas for two years, uh, which is how the, the scorecard defines a cohort, they have data on 11 million students. So the coverage is, is quite a bit larger than, than it is for, for Payscale and, and any other alternative. And, and then as, as a researcher, I'm just extremely happy about the fact that the data is well organized and very easy to use and download and, and, and very well documented. So you get to see a little bit behind the scenes of how the data are constructed and its various strengths and limitations. Anyone can go download this data? That's right. It's on the website and it's you know, anyone who's you know, comfortable using CSV files or Excel files can, can play with the raw data themselves. Cool. All right. Uh, but what are some limitations of the, uh, the college scorecard data? Yeah, so there, there are a number of significant limitations, and the folks who constructed the scorecard are, are aware of them. Uh, the, the biggest one is that it only applies to federally aided students, so the earnings data are only for students who got a Pell Grant or took out a federal student loan. And as, as you might imagine, that tends to be lower-income students. The Pell Grant program is explicitly for lower-income students, but, but students who take out loans tend to be from lower-earning family backgrounds than those who don't take out loans and whose parents can afford to pay for the, the whole cost of you know, tuition and, and everything else. So that creates a bias overall and, and importantly at a given school because each school has a different mix of students that are federal aid recipients. And so what I found is that data seemed to be less accurate in, in terms of their you know, coverage of the average student for the schools that have low federal loan uh, recipient rates. Uh, another problem is that schools with branch campuses report their earnings only at the system level. So to take Penn State as an example, the main campus is shown with earnings data that are lower than it would be otherwise because all the other branch campuses, which are, which are much less selective, uh, are, are rolled into the, the earnings report for the main campus. Uh, another m problem is that there's no measure of, of learning or, or subsequent acquisition of a graduate degree even. Uh, the first one would be very difficult to, to do, the second one fairly easy. Well, we can get into <laughs> you know, what other you know, alternative measures rather than earnings will look like later. Um, but uh, another problem is that, that would be fairly easy to solve is there's no way to distinguish earnings by major, and that's something that a lot of people have complained about. Right. Uh, let's look at earnings. Why are earnings, uh, earnings data so important in your rankings? I focus on earnings for, for a couple of reasons. One is theoretical. Earnings aren't everything, of course, but they're an important measure of welfare and, and even happiness. We know from subjective happiness surveys uh, that that earnings is, is highly correlated with how people report themselves as, as feeling and being. We also know from you know, more objectively that 
people who earn more live longer, uh, suffer fewer health problems, less likely to be obese, less likely to have heart disease, all these kinds of things. So there, there does seem to be some real important benefits of earning that you know, go beyond just the superficial aspect of being able to consume more. Um, so that's yeah, one reason uh, to go with earnings. The, uh, second is, is just more practical. Earnings can be precisely measured. They can also be reliably measured using administrative data or survey data. Uh, people can tell you well, on the precision side. People can tell you exactly how much they earned, or or at least look it up. Or and if it's administrative data, they don't even have to look it up because it's right there in, uh, in the IRS records. Uh, so if one to re- measure alternatives such as you know, happiness, well-being, or social impact, something like that, it'd be very difficult to come up with a precise estimate. As many people themselves would disagree about what the concept even means. And then there would be reliable reliability issues uh, in terms of, of having to implement a survey that was replicated each year and, and things like that. So those are some of the reasons I focus on, on earnings. I think ideally uh, one would, would want to capture some aspect of learning. That's for me the biggest downside of, of using only earnings. Of course, people, uh, especially those majoring in in fields of study like education, theology, uh, you know, arts, uh, and even people you know, thinking they want to go on to become professors of, of history or a liberal arts subject aren't necessarily going to care about earnings uh, to the same extent uh, as, as others. They're, they're going to be more interested in you know, how much are they going to learn that's relevant to their field of study. And, and for right now, there's no measure of that available. All right. Before we go to break, uh, you mentioned uh, Penn State as an example a minute ago. Is that your alma mater? That is where I got my undergraduate. Undergraduate. All right. Nittany Lions. I went to Georgetown. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. But first, let's take a short coffee break to hear from the holder of this year's European Union Senior Fellowship in our Center on the United States and Europe. And stay tuned to the end of my discussion with Jonathan Rothwell for some expert insight on carbon pricing. Hello, my name is Ala Olium. I'm an official of the European Union. I work as an advisor to the um, managing director for Middle East and North Africa at the European External Action Service in Brussels. And I'm also um, here at Brookings as a visiting fellow, uh, but also as a EU or European Union senior fellow. I grew up in Vancouver in British Columbia in Canada, uh, the son of um, exiles from Estonia. Uh, my parents escaped Estonia at the tail end of the Second War and uh, first settled in Sweden. Then when Canada opened its doors, uh, they went to Canada and settled there where I was born and raised. What inspired me to be a scholar? I was inspired to go to university and um, study history and social sciences uh, to understand my own identity, which was very much um, infused by my parents' experience and the experience of their generation having to go into exile, um, escaping oppression uh, from the Soviet Union, and also learning about my um, country of birth, Canada, and how it came to be and, and the problems that existed there. So I had a huge need to understand uh, international politics, um, history, even philosophy, culture, uh, all those kind of things helped me to understand my own background, why I ended up being born and raised in Vancouver and not in Estonia, <laughs> and um, also um, what could be done in order to change that reality. 
Well, I think definitely bar none. Uh, the most important um, issue that we're facing today is um, what I would see as the basic contradiction between the current economic model and the carrying capacity of the earth, ecologically speaking. Uh, I think um, climate change is definitely getting the most press, and, and rightly so. It's a huge issue. And we're only seeing the beginning of the effects of climate change, I think. But what is even more troubling, in my view, and probably cannot be changed, is the um, extinction of species and a destruction of ecosystems. Um, and unfortunately, linked with that also, I think, is, is the destruction of cultural diversity. Um, the way that globalization, which brings us a lot of benefits, also brings a certain downside, and that is, I think, simplification of cultural interchange in the world and, and, a, and a destruction of diversity. Well, accepting to be a European Union fellow, I have uh, two main functions. The first, I think the most important, is to be a kind of unofficial ambassador for the EU, and that is to bring a European perspective to bear on different policy discussions that take place here in Brookings, but in the wider policy community in Washington. And the second is to uh, do research on a specific project, which I had to devise and sell in order to be selected to be a EU fellow and also had to be of interest to uh, Brookings, uh, the, the host institution, and that is to do a kind of a comparative analysis of what I call great power policies in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, great power is just a name for the US, European Union, Russia, and China. And this is a bit of an extension of the work that I had been doing as a professional working in the European External Action Service in Brussels, uh, organizing dialogues with those what we call strategic partners. And the end product should be uh, for Brookings, a scholarly article, uh, doing this comparative analysis, looking at a few case studies. And for the European Union, it should be a policy paper which su suggests some very concrete things, how to improve the dialogues, but also how to improve or even initiate cooperation in specific areas in the Middle East with um, any one or combination of those great powers. Um, it's very difficult to... Um, uh, recommend one book uh, to your listeners, um, but uh, considering that Iran is again really up in in the uh, news these days, I would recommend rereading, or if you haven't read it, to read for the first time Shah of Shahs. It's an incredible account of um, the downfall of the of the Shah of Iran and the Iranian Revolution. More about Alar Oljam on our website at Brookings.edu/cuse. And now back to Jonathan Rothwell. Jonathan, what findings surprised you the most in this research? Well, I think you know when I first did this in, in, in back in April without using the scorecard data and relying on pay scale and, and student default rates and some other measures of, of, of outcomes, what, what surprised me is just how well some schools did that I'd never heard of and, and that don't even show up in the ranking systems of you know, of U.S. News or, or other conventional systems. So that would be schools like Rose Holman, like SUNY Maritime College, uh, some specialist schools that U.S. News explicitly leaves out because they focus on engineering or science or pharmaceutical studies, the Albany College of, of Pharmacy, for example. Uh, it turns out that the admission standards for a number of these schools aren't excessively high, uh, and yet the students earn some of the highest salaries of, of any college 
in, in the country. STEM programs, or science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs are very important in your ranking system. Is that right? That's right. So uh, the way that I, you know, I, I described the value-added system earlier is the difference between actual and predicted outcomes. That is, that is true, and, but there's another way of calculating it that, that I make explicit in, in my methodology. You can take what we call observable aspects of quality and add that to unobservable aspects of quality. And one of the things that I consider an observable aspect of quality is the curriculum. And so what we try to do is take the, the mix of majors that a college offers and come up with a measure of what you'd expect alumni to earn just based, based on their field of study uh, using national data on earnings by field of study. And not surprisingly, a lot of schools that focus on higher value uh, majors, which are predominantly STEM majors like engineering, computer science, biology, which often leads to medical careers, have students that are earning uh, among the highest salaries. I think the, the interesting thing about this is, is not that MIT and Caltech graduates have really high earnings, but even when you go to a fairly non-selective school that emphasizes STEM, these students are acquiring very valuable knowledge seemingly and, and getting great jobs uh, even, even at sometimes the two-year level. So how do you see uh, your ranking system being used by both students and colleges? So uh, I think the, these data are probably most useful for colleges themselves, administrators seeking to improve the quality of the, the experience of, uh, of their alumni, uh, as well as public policymakers who are focused on these issues. So I've, I've had a number of interactions with uh, college presidents as well as institutional researchers who are trying to uh, dig deeply into these data and gain some insights from them. They appreciate the fact that uh, they can compare themselves across a, a large number of schools in a way that makes sense to them. I've also disaggregated my value-added measures so that one can can rank the school on the, the different components. So I mentioned the curriculum as uh, one, one component uh, that you can separately analyze. So with these with this database that we've put on our website, a college president can see, well, okay, this is my value added ranking overall. And then here's how I rank on curriculum value. Say that's going well. Okay. I've got the right classes in terms of alignment with high paying careers. Maybe there if if it this the overall value add score is lower than than I would have hoped. Maybe the problem is uh, the, the instructional quality isn't where it needs to be or the administrative supports for the students aren't where they need to be. Maybe the graduation rate's fairly low despite the high curriculum you know, opportunities. And so then they can th develop strategies to try to fix those problems. On the other hand, if a school has a low, low curriculum, uh, you know, maybe they want to expand their computer science department or, or something like that. Have any of those college presidents uh, complained to you or challenged your findings if, uh, if their school ended up on the lower side of the list? I'm sure those conversations have gone on in private or, or not private settings that I'm not aware of, but no one has called me or written to me to explicitly complain about where their college is ranked. I have gotten comments that are more general in nature, you know, trying to explain why one school may, may be lower, um, for example. Uh, Swarthmore are using the college scorecard database. Doesn't look uh, particularly strong, and certainly not as strong as as one might expect, given it's an elite uh, uh, college. And one uh, alumna uh, 
explained to me that one of the reasons may be that many go on to get PhDs, they may be in low-paying postdocs, and as long as they're not enrolled and working, they're included in the college scorecard database. So there are are issues like that that I can't really do anything to about but can acknowledge that, that yes, in fact, these are limitations. I will observe that my alma mater, undergraduate alma mater, Georgetown, is considerably further down your rankings than it is in U.S. News, but I'm not complaining. I know uh, it's uh, has a lower STEM uh, involved curriculum, for example, than some of your other schools. That's not a complaint. Yeah, it still yes, it still does very well though. Um, in, in in my rankings, I think top you know, one of the certainly one of the top schools. Right, and you have five. How many? Three thousand, five thousand uh, schools in your uh, in your rankings. Three thousand, I think. Right. We well we and we distinguish between predominantly four year. Uh, colleges and probably two-year colleges, but but still, yeah, right. It's to be ranked in the you know the top twenty or fifty uh, here is 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 more meaningful than being ranked in the top fifty U.S. News because they they only have two hundred colleges or so. That sure. Ranking. Well, so Jonathan, uh, what additional research do you think needs to be done, and what additional research are you doing in this field? So what? Yeah, I think uh, you know an easy first step here would be to do some kind of ranking system using these methods that would break down earnings by field of study. Uh, that data it doesn't currently exist, but my understanding is that uh, the Department of Education is working to develop those metrics. And the, the, the state of Texas actually provides those data for their colleges. So uh, that would be, I think, a very practical, easy-to-do improvement on on this kind of thing. Uh, A much more ambitious project and one that I'd like to work on um, is is to try to develop alternative measures of alumni success Um, and and one of those would be related to learning. So there are a few different approaches that, that one can imagine here. There's actually a fair amount of information already out there that's just not accessible to the public on on learning measures. Uh, for example, uh, two companies, uh, Pearson and ETS, uh, administer exams of, of undergraduate students. Uh, in the case of Pearson, they administer most of the licensing exams. Uh, so if someone wants to become a registered nurse or licensed engineer architect, they take a formal exam usually developed by a state or national uh, you know, nonprofit organization. Pearson has these data at the institutional level. Uh, one can imagine you know, analyzing these data to try to get a sense of, of which programs in those particular you know, fields are, are getting the best results and then you could consider you know, the level of preparation the students going in to get a value-added measure. Uh, Likewise, ETS has data that they collect on on, on field of major exams that, that colleges themselves administer to try to get a, to try to evaluate their programs. Uh, so uh, that's that would be kind of a first step to take the existing data, and then uh, one could imagine developing a more comprehensive exam that could be administered to all or nearly all students across different majors. The OECD, as it happens, is trying to develop these kind of measures. It's, a, it's at a very preliminary stage, very far from implementation, but they have demonstrated success recently in testing adults. They had a, a survey called PIAC, which they administered across many different countries, 
and they found that the skills of adults in that survey were highly predictive of their earnings and uh, you know, seemed to really be measuring something that was important and, and a value, at least in the labor market. So that's, that's where I'd like to see the research go. All right. Well, uh, thanks, your, thanks very much for joining me today, Jonathan, for this very interesting conversation. Well, thanks for having me. You can learn more about Jonathan Rothwell and his research on value-added college rankings on our website at brookings.edu and look for links to all of his reports in our show notes. And now in part three of our Paris Climate Conference series, the importance of carbon pricing to reducing the risk of climatic disruption. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Adele Morris. I'm a senior fellow in the Economic Studies Program at Brookings, and I'm the policy director for our Climate and Energy Economics Project. And that means that most of my research deals with the economics of climate and energy policies, both in the United States and globally. And what I want to talk about today is the role of the United States and the policies in the United States that go into our commitment in Paris. So the U.S. is one of the countries that's provided a pledge for the Paris Climate Conference. It's our intended nationally determined contribution, the INDC. And we've committed to reducing our emissions in the range of 26 to 28 percent of all our greenhouse gases relative to 2005 levels by 2025. So that's a significant decrease in U.S. emissions. Um, the good news is we're part of the way there, uh, but we still have a ways to go. And the question arises, then, how are we going to achieve this pledge? And what can the U.S. do beyond 2025 that would continue to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in the most cost-effective way possible? Right now, the only authority the president has to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in any significant way is under the Clean Air Act, which was never intended by Congress to address greenhouse gases. It was adopted long before we even really understood the science of global climatic disruption. So the president is using this authority because Congress hasn't acted to provide better authority to achieve these environmental goals. So the U.S. commitment hinges on regulations that EPA is promulgating under the Clean Air Act, and the EPA has issued a final rule that controls greenhouse gases from power plants, and that's our one of our very biggest sources of emissions. And it would reduce, uh, according to EPA estimates, emissions from our power plants by about 32 percent by 2030. Now, what are the problems with the Clean Air Act authority? Obviously, the EPA is making the most of this authority, and I my hat is off to the agency and the White House for doing the best they can, but fundamentally, it's really not suited to greenhouse gas emissions because it requires state-by-state implementation, and sector-by-sector sector, regulation. So there's no good reason from a climate perspective why different states should have different incentives to reduce emissions or why you should treat one sector separately from another sector. So 
the idea economists would bring to this is that you want to harmonize incentives across all the states, all the sectors, and even across economies in, in the global context. The other problem is because Clean Air Act hasn't really been used for greenhouse gas regulation before, there's a lot of litigation around it. There's some legal uncertainty as to whether or not EPA's approach is going to fly when it hits the courts. And there's also the vulnerability of what the priorities of the next administration might be. All of the Republican candidates for president have expressed their opposition to this regulation and have promised to roll back the rule. In fact, both the House and the Senate have voted to vacate the rule. The president will veto those measures, but it does raise the prospect that all of EPA's hard work could be supplanted in the next administration. So what do we need to do? What we need to do is put a price on carbon. And there's a few ways to do that, but in my view, the best, simplest, and most clear-cut way is to do a tax on the carbon content of fossil fuels, also called an excise tax, and use the revenue in a way that promotes economic growth and protects low-income households for any new burdens that tax would create. Economists widely agree that this is imperative if we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in any significant way. And I think once my Republican friends come to understand that really this is a serious issue, we need to take action, they're going to be looking for the most pro-growth free enterprise way to solve the problem. And a carbon tax that's used to cut other taxes that burden the economy seems like a real possibility there. Thank you. A full version of Adele's recommendations is on our SoundCloud page, where you can also listen to more expert commentary from our series on the Paris Climate Talks. And also check out the December-January edition of Esquire magazine, where Adele's recommendations on a carbon tax are included as part of a feature article on critical choices facing America. Finally, you can find the latest research and commentary about the climate talks on our website at brookings.edu COP21. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. And also thanks to artist Jessica Pavone, online support team of Chris Anichi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahian, and our intern, Karen Wilgargus. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.